We have been going through, I loved what Perry said this morning about the powerful nature of John 3.16. And of course, it is a very familiar verse. All of us probably can recite it from memory. Remember back in the 70s, those of you who are old enough, the guy with the red and yellow and orange hair, uh, big afro, and he would hold up the John 3.16 sign at all of the sporting events. People became very familiar with it then. Even if they didn't know what John 3.16 said, they might look it up. because, like, who's that crazy guy and what is John 3.16? What is that all about? But it's about the love of God and the fact that God loves because it is his nature to love. It said in 1 John, which we just finished studying, that God is love. That is his very nature. He is love. And we love, that is, both his children, Christians, those of us who have been born into his family, but really the entire human family, the entire human creation created in his image loves because he first loved us. We learn to love because of the dramatic love of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in God? Okay, you're in church. That's a a likelihood that you believe in God. Paul said to the Romans that really everybody should believe in God. The evidence for God is all around us in the creation. If we look at the vastness of the universe, the galaxies far, far away, many of which have yet even to be discovered. Theories now that there are even multiverses, that is, other universes that exist that we don't even for sure know about. And then when you go on uh, an atomic or subatomic level, quarks and all kinds of fascinating theories about what holds creation together. In all of this, we see an incredible design. The psalmist wrote that we, our bodies, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. There is a design inherent in the human creation that is wondrous. So really, we ought to all believe in God. It's simple logic. Now, there are a lot of people who do not believe in God. They ignore the evidence, as Paul says to the Romans there in Romans chapter 1. They willfully turn away from the evidence for God. But there is a God. So my next question to you is, you believe in God, then who is God? What is God? How do you answer that question. Who is the one who created all things and made them for his glory? How do you answer that question? Okay, Father God, thank you. How do you find out what the Father is like? What is the nature of the Father? Is he a vengeful, judgmental, wrath? Full God? Where do you find out 
who he is and what his attributes are? Well, it's in this book. And more so even than in this book is in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. One of the disciples, Philip, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be good enough. In other words, Philip thought he had been with Jesus for three and a half years, but there was still something more to find out about the Father. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Philip, have I been with you for so long, and yet you do not understand? When you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, Jesus perfectly revealed the Father to his disciples. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, the perfect imprint, if you will, of the Father's likeness. So, we find out who God is and what he is like from reading this book and from becoming acquainted with Jesus Christ and his character. There is a parable in Luke chapter 15 called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, parables are designed to teach us truth. They are designed to reveal, typically, a singular truth about some topic. It's somewhat a story, somewhat, in certain cases, an illustration that can be considered a dark saying, confusing, and that's intentional. Parables are designed to reveal truth to those who are seeking truth, but to conceal truth from those who are indifferent to truth. In Luke 15, at the very beginning of the the chapter, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now before we judge the Pharisees and the teachers of the law too harshly here, let's stop back, stop for a moment and think about where we go to when we think about people who are outside of the faith, people who have yet to come to Christ, people perhaps who are walking in dark sin. Can't we be a little bit like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when we look at them? Sinners, tax collectors, those people. Sometimes we get that way. But in chapter 15 of Luke, Jesus tells several parables, concluding with the parable of the prodigal son, to reveal the father's heart, to show us what the father is like. The fact that the father loves those who are lost. And in simple reality, you and I, we've been prodigals. We are the prodigal son. At different points in time in our lives, are we not? Don't we stray away from the Father and follow after our own will, our own desires many times? 
But the Father still loves us. And in the parable of the prodigal son, I've titled this morning's message, The Perfect Love of the Father. I want to look at several different truths that Jesus is revealing about the heart of the Father that I think sometimes escape us. Sometimes we come to God by grace through faith. We recognize our neediness, the fact that we are sinners, that we are lost, that we are dead in our sin and trespasses. And we cry out to God and we ask God to forgive us. And He does. And we ask God to receive us, and he does. But then we slip back, sometimes almost imperceptibly so, into this relationship with the Father that is very legally based. In other words, it's not that God loves us profoundly, but that he's always looking for a mess-up to judge. Anybody besides me been there? Sometimes we begin to think of God the Father as that uh, loud, judgmental, harsh personality that is always looking for an opportunity to critique us. And in the parable of the prodigal son, we see a vastly different picture of the father. And what I want to suggest to you here this morning as we go through this is whatever you think about God, no matter how wonderfully you perceive him or how lovingly you understand him, he's better than that. Jesus said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more then will the Father give good gifts to those who ask him? So God is really infinitely better than we can imagine him to be. And the unfortunate reality, as I mentioned, is that so often we imagine him to be something that he is Absolutely not. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild and riotous living. After he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now this is a picture of humanity that has left God. God, as I mentioned, our creator, created us in his image. And yet, through the rebellion of Adam, we all have gone astray. Each one of us, Isaiah says, has turned to his own way. There is not one of us without sin. No, not one. So we are the prodigal. And I see myself in this picture so very clearly. 
I look back on my life before Christ, the darkness of it, the intensity of my sin. I had a a life for a period of time that rivaled or probably exceeded in debauchery what the prodigal son was involved with. And there was even a time, and I, I recall this as clear as day, where I had... I was strung out. I was in a very, very bad place. And I remember calling my mother, not knowing what else to do. Called my mom and shared with her literally what was happening in my life, which pretty much, for the most part, she didn't know about. And I remember her just total acceptance. I remember thinking she was going to totally reject me, totally shun me after what I shared with her. And she told me, you know what, son, I'm going to pray with you, and it's going to be all right. And she did pray with me over the phone. Later in the mail, I got this clipping from Ann Landers. And in it was the story of the starfish, how the man would go out and save the starfish. And the person came up to him and said, what are you doing that? There's hundreds and hundreds of starfish here. It doesn't make a difference what you're doing. And the man who was saving the starfish said, well, it makes a difference to this one. And I remember God using that in my life to just communicate to me that he loved me, that I made a difference. And that began my process back. But all of us, maybe not to the degree that I was, but all of you out here have had your own experiences, could tell your own stories about how far away from God perhaps you had gotten. Perhaps you were one who didn't really get that far away from God, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But here, the prodigal recognizes that he has strayed far away from his father, that he is in a situation that is desperate, and it says in verse 17 that he came to his senses. He recognized then how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. Now, when he came to his senses, what was it that happened in his life that made him recognize that he could rise and return? I mean, he does not have, as we will see, an accurate picture of his father's feelings towards him. But he does understand that even under the circumstances he is in, if he goes back to his father, he would at least be allowed to be a servant. He would at least be fed. He would at least have something because he has nothing at this point. What was it that made him come to his senses? I believe it was a remembrance of his father's love. A return in thought, at least, to the experiences he had had with his father. 
and how his father's love had been demonstrated to him in the past. And it's true for us too. The Bible says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That remembrance, that recognition, that understanding that God really is good. And that if we turn to him, he really will do good toward us. He is not sitting on a cloud with a lightning bolt looking to destroy us. Anything but. So he came to his senses. He remembered his father's love and expected that his father would allow him at least to feed with his other servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now we get into the really good stuff. While he, that is the prodigal son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around his son, and kissed him. Verse 20 there has to be one of the most powerful illustrations of the love of God that I have ever read. Because again, remember, Jesus is teaching us this parable to show us the truth of what the Father's heart is towards those tax collectors, those sinners, you and me. And in verse 20, he reveals it. The prodigal is still a long way off. He has not come through the gates and into the property of the father and knocked upon the door. No, he is still a far way off. And it says his father saw him. So the love of the father is a seeking love, a searching love. A love that has its eyes out for any sign of a turn. Any sign of a repentance. Any sign that the lost might be found. If you are in a position, and if you are hearing my voice today on the radio and are in a position where you think that God has forgotten you, that God does not care about you, that God is not interested in you. This should turn that thinking around. The father saw him afar off. That meant the father. I imagine in this story the father sitting upon his portico watching every day as far as he could scan the horizon for any sign of the return. His love is a seeking love. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you imagine that there was any other Jewish rabbi that was willing to go and sit with a Samaritan woman who had been married five times and have conversation with her? Besides Jesus Christ? I think not. In fact, when his disciples came back to him, they said, what's going on here? Why is he talking to a Samaritan woman? She's a sinner. She's not a Jew. Almost worse than the fact that she's a Samaritan is the fact that she's a woman. And he's talking to her. 
But Jesus was seeking to save the lost. He was looking afar off. He was going to the one that was there in that region whose heart was ready to return. So the Father's love is a seeking, a searching love. And it says that he was filled with compassion. The moment he saw his son, was he filled with anger? There's the one who took my inheritance, who wasted it. There's the one who totally shamed the name of this family. There's the one who has broken trust with me. No, that's not in verse 20. He was filled with compassion. Literally, the, the, the word there means his inward parts were bursting out with love. He was filled with love and, and forgiveness for his son. The first sight of his son returning, his emotional reaction was love and forgiveness. And again, the same holds true for the Father in heaven, who, as Perry shared with us, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A great love, a great compassion, a compelling forgiveness. Now, the son's coming up the lane, walking to his father. But the father leaves his seat, steps off of his porch, it says, and he ran to his son. The compassion was so overwhelming. The love that he was feeling for his son, son so profound. He had to move. And he didn't just step up and walk towards his son. He ran towards his son. This is a picture of the father's active love. He is at work in our lives, in your life, and in my life. And when we are in those situations where we wonder, where is God? How does God allow this kind of suffering in a person's life? How does God allow such darkness to enter into my experience? The simple fact is, is that God is active in your life. He is running toward you. Because he loves you, because he cares about you, he is moving. It says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God has this transcendent, supernatural way of moving towards us and moving in us to cause us to continue our journey towards him. He is faithful. He is true. He is the one that's running to us. Sometimes we'll take two steps toward him and then three steps back. Have you been there? Do you know what I'm talking about? Sure you do. We have a little bit of a heart for God, but sometimes the things of the world, the power of our flesh in our lives, overcome it. 
And we fall back into sin. We fall back into darkness. We fall into that questioning mode where we wonder, where is a loving God in all of this? Well, the truth is that loving God is running towards you. He is active in your life. Because you are a son or a daughter, according to Hebrews, he may be disciplining you because he loves you. He may be allowing something in your life to occur that causes you to grow up in the faith to turn your eyes toward him. But that's a result also of his love. The thing I want you to understand is he is running toward you. He has not forgotten you, regardless of where you may find yourself today. The the difficulty of your situation, he sees you afar off. He is filled with compassion, and he is moving with great speed where you are. When he arrives at his son, where his son is at, it says he threw his arms around him and kissed him. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes in my relationship with God, and like I shared with you earlier, I tend to fall into that mode where I get into this legal relationship with God. When I'm doing things well, I think God loves me. When I am praying and fasting and reading my Bible, I'm sure that God loves me then. But when I slip out of those behaviors and I begin to to do things perhaps that I shouldn't or just I become somewhat indifferent about the things of God, I begin to assure myself that In no way could God love me at those times. That God has, again, sort of this dispassionate relationship with me where he is ready to punish, but otherwise doesn't really feel that strongly about me. This phrase, threw his arms around him and kissed him, paints a picture of a a father who loves his son so much that he doesn't really care what anyone thinks. He is an emotional father. He cares about us with a great passion. The Bible even says in the Old Testament that he sings over us, that he dances with joy. Because of us. Here he threw his arms around his son and began to kiss him on the face. Again, a very emotional picture of the father's love. The fact that the father is passionate about you. Passionate in his love for you. He is not indifferent. He is not sort of reserved when it comes to expressing his love. He's the kind of dad that loves to just slobber all over his kids. Now, some of you, as I paint this picture of the father's love, you're saying, that's not the father I have. I get that. A lot of us have experienced earthly fathers or relationship with men in fatherly or paternal positions who are nothing like this. And that's unfortunate. 
but all the more reason for us to understand and to make a part of our reality with God the true picture that Jesus is trying to portray to us here of what the Father's love is like. It's like I said, even when we're imagining the Father's love, the best way we can, we still fall far short of what it really is. So he's an emotional father. He loves his children emotionally. So the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son follows the script that he had no doubt been rehearsing in his mind as he returned to his father's estate. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Fully expecting at this point his father, perhaps, if he was fortunate, to allow him to act as one of his servants, to be fed and clothed as one of his servants. And the son was okay with that. He was understanding his father's love might allow that to occur based upon all of the wasted, squandered things that he had done. And this is how we approach God sometimes. We approach him with this confession of repentance, fully expecting He'll do something good for us, but having no full appreciation of the gravity of what awaits us when we return to the Father. Listen to this. First thing the Father does. Says to his servants, quickly, bring the very best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate. Now, can you imagine what the prodigal son must have been thinking at this point. He must have been out of his mind. What's going on? I thought he was only going to allow me to return as a servant. The very first thing he does is put a robe on him, cover him with the father's very best. He puts a ring on his finger. Now, this is significant. This is not just a ring for adornment. This is a ring signifying the full investment in the son of authority throughout the estate. It was a signet ring through which he could apply the estate's seal to correspondence. The father was giving him, restoring to him, full authority over the estate. Put sandals on his feet that he no longer has to walk this road uncovered. Now, these are theological pictures also. The robe, obviously, representative of the robe of Christ's righteousness. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It says in Isaiah 63 that we are covered with the robe, or excuse me, 61, the robe of his righteousness. Again, the ring, the authority we have been given, the authority of the kingdom of God. We are, it says in the Bible, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have the same authority that Jesus has. We have been given sandals on our feet. Our, our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the good news that God loves us. 
So all of this, the Father gives to the Son. Absolute restoration. And beyond that, he kills the fatted calf and begins to celebrate the return of his Son. Now, remember how this story started out. The Son rejected the Father. He asked blessing from the Father, and then he left the Father. And the Father did not force him to stay. And that's another wonderful picture of the Father's love. It is a love freely given. It is a love that God does not force upon us, but he is absolutely ready, as we just saw here, to give to us. So it's a love freely given. As we see here, it's a blessed love, a love that seeks to bless and to give. It's a love that celebrates the relationship that exists. This son of mine was dead, but he is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, I have in times past tried to imagine myself putting myself in the position of the father. Having a child who was prodigal, who had left my will for them. And not only that, but who had squandered all that I had tried to give to them. And upon their return, doing what this father did. And you know, it's interesting. I can imagine that. I can imagine myself doing that. Because again, I love my children. So do you. You can imagine yourself doing something like this when you had a child who returned to you, regardless of what they had done, regardless of what they had been through. Our love is strong enough to see ourselves doing this. So when I think in those terms, I step back and I begin to imagine, again, how much greater the Father's love is than I can possibly even begin to imagine. How much more profound his love is for you here this morning. No matter what you're going through, no matter what your perception is of him, his love for you is perfect. It is absolutely perfect. And it has all of these aspects running through it and more. We need to step into that kind of a relationship with our Father. That's why Paul began to use the term Abba to describe the relationship with the Father. No longer pater, P-A-T-E-R. That's the term for Father. It means originator or begin, beginning. But he began to use the word Abba, which is a term of endearment with relationship to a Father. What it means is, dear daddy. A father, a potter, is someone that you might return to and expect that they will restore you as a servant and feed you and clothe you. An Abba 
is someone who throws his arm around you and slobbers all over you and says, let's celebrate. Let's make this life a good one. And let's keep our relationship joyfully intact. I'm going to stop there. I, I want to stop on the, the nature of, of the father's love. There's the older son. You guys have all read it. And probably we've all been there at different times. But this morning, I just want us to reflect upon the profound, deep, wonderful love that God has for us as our Father, as our Abba. And let's begin to walk in that, that wonderful acceptance, that that understanding that he is running towards us, that he is looking for us, that he is emotional about us, and that he wants to celebrate with us. I'm going to ask Colin to come up. We're going to close with a song that is called the Prodigal Song, and it's a song that illustrates, based upon this story, the Father's love.